0: Today's passage is going to teach us that if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, now that applies to a whole bunch of you, if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that very belief is a miracle. It means that you're not good at believing or you didn't happen to get yourself the right strategy to find out how to get to the right place at the right time to hear the right message. No, 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 no. It means that God has acted upon your heart. God produced in you a trust in Christ which you could not have manufactured on your own. Charles Simeon was right when he wrote of this passage. If God did not interpose, all people would equally despise the Gospel. It is His grace which alone makes the distinction. The sermon in a sentence today would be, you must have Christ. Now, if I could put that word somehow suspended in midair, I would underline and highlight and circle and asterisk and star the word must. You must have Christ because He is the power and wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll pick up the reading in verse 18. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. Hear the word of the living God. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. And sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's Word. Would you join me at the throne of grace one more time, as we ask for God to help us. Father, I can say in just one simple phrase, the certainly not simple thing i'm asking i'm asking that you would allow me to preach christ crucified and i'm asking that you would do the miracle of putting people in him And I'm also asking you, O God, to edify and sanctify in Him those who have believed that message preached. We ask this for your glory, in Jesus' name, Amen. There are three parts to the passage as I see it, verse 18, part 1, verses 19 to 29, part 2. Verses 30 and 31, part 3. Part 1, verse 18, is about God's Word concerning Christ. Part 2, verses 19 to 29, is about God's wisdom in Christ. And then part 3, verses 30 and 31, are about God's work through Christ. God's Word, God's wisdom, God's work. First, God's Word concerning Christ. Verse 18. Anytime you see a verse like this in the Bible that begins with a word like this, you need to take consideration. It begins with the word for, F-O-R, because, since, therefore. This verse clearly takes us back to verse 17, which reads, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, verse 18, I'm saying, is about God's word concerning Christ. The word of the cross is the way verse 18 puts it. Paul is saying that the reason that he was sent by God to preach the gospel in simple, clear terms was verse 17, so that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its saving power. That the sinister physician would not come in and abort the power of the cross by covering it in a veneer of persuasive words. The focus on oratory and smooth rhetoric would mean to shift the focus of the message from Christ to the communicator. And therefore, such preaching cannot save because if you're distracted from Jesus by anything or anyone, you have no Savior because He is the only one. The cross of Christ is the answer and the only answer to man's damnable dilemma. Now that sounds very impersonal. So let me make it a little more specific. I'm not talking about the person who's sitting in the chair beside you. I'm talking to the person who's occupying your seat. The cross of Christ is the only answer to that person's damnable dilemma. This thought carries into verse 18, namely, the fact that Christ crucified and risen is the power of God to save sinners and that wisdom of God That the message of Christ is in fact God's power, reeks of foolishness to a large percentage of the human population. But that percentage of the human population, as big as they may be and as great of a percentage of humanity as they may be, they think that the cross of Christ is foolishness, really doesn't change the fact of the matter that it is still the power of God to save because God has never put the matter to a vote. And in fact, though the vast majority of people in human history, and what makes you think you're not one among them, the vast majority of people in human history are described by that little word, the perishing. The perishing. Christ crucified to them is foolishness. Why? Because they, as Paul would put it in a word, are the perishing. But the same message, Christ crucified, is to another subset of humanity, power. Now we would expect him to say wisdom. Foolishness to the perishing, wisdom to the saved. That's not what he says. Foolishness to the perishing. Power to the saved. You don't need to be made smart. You need to be made alive. You need power on you. Not a new thought pattern. You need to be acted upon by the omnipotent God. The cross of Jesus Christ is the great divide of human history. Now we hear often that the world is divided into two types of people. And we love to put silly things into those categorizations, but it's the year 2019 for a particular reason. The continental divide of human history is a man, Jesus of Nazareth. Christ's cross not only divides periods of time into B.C. and A.D., Christ's cross also divides people into one of two groups, the perishing or the saved. So let's look at verse 18 carefully, this little phrase, foolishness to the perishing, and then power to those being saved. First, foolishness to the perishing. This is under God's Word concerning Christ. Verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The Bible's loving and sober message. It is a message of love, and I know it oftentimes is accused of being anything but that. But the Bible's loving message though certainly a sober message to all men everywhere is that you are born in sin for all men are sinners. And this verse says it is those who are perishing who perceive the cross of Christ as foolishness. Now, if you were to look at Romans 2.12 or 1 Corinthians 15.18, or if you licked your finger and flipped a little further into 2 Corinthians 2:15, 2, or over to chapter 4, verse 3, or you went to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, you would find the Apostle Paul used the exact same word, the exact same way. You would quickly discern that if you looked at those and other references, that the Apostle Paul uses this word "perishing" to refer to what Dr. Tom Schreiner calls an eschatological destruction. The reason that lost people are not gripped with a ubiquitous, pervasive, bone-jarring fear is because they cannot see the tsunami on the horizon. In no uncertain terms, Paul uses this word, perishing, to say that these people are what Jesus was talking about in John 3.36. Not that the wrath of God is coming, but the wrath of God already abides on those who do not believe the Gospel. You may say, "Well, well, preacher, that's not a very encouraging message. It's not why I showed up here today. But friends, I'm standing here not because... I think that this is a popular feel-good way to gain crowd, win friends, influence people, but I'm in the line of Noah. And I'm here to say to you that even if you can't see the rain clouds and you don't feel the raindrops, the wrath of God is coming. The flood is on its way. The whole world will be judged in righteousness through a man, Christ Jesus. And God has put forward Christ's cross as the only ark in which you must abide if you will ever be saved. If you reject Jesus and God's work in Him for your salvation, Paul said, not you will perish, you are perishing already. The cross is foolishness to such people. And we're not going to argue anybody into the kingdom. I can't make the argument watertight enough. I can't make the rhetorical syllogism strong enough. I can't tell you that A plus B equals C enough times for it to click. You need a miracle. And it is those people that Paul refers to in the second half of the verse. To us who are being saved, it, the Word of the cross, is the power of God. So underneath God's wor- Word concerning Christ, that is foolishness to the perishing, but it's also the power of God to those who are being saved. Now, praise God, praise God, there's another subset of humanity. Do you know that when we hear phrases like, that's not fair, when we refer to God, that the last thing any of us ever want is for God to be fair? Because we should all be among the perishing there's no reason that God should have saved any of us especially at such a cost to himself we're the guilty he's the glorious God of the ages but praise God there is another subset of humanity that is the being saved being the gospel is the power of God for salvation Romans says to all who believe And like those who in the book of Numbers, Old Testament, chapter 21, who looked to the bronze serpent and they were healed of their mortal wounds, so also those who look to the cross of Christ for healing from sin, sickness, and disease, which has contaminated every part of you, it is those and those alone who are being saved. To us who are being saved, the word of the cross, the power of God. It's a present tense participle, are being saved. Jeffrey Wilson wrote it about it this way, those whom God has declared righteous are in the process of being made holy. And this increasing conformity to Christ will be perfected in glorification. Paul's declaring that the power for justification to be made right in God's sight is also the power for sanctification to be made more and more like Christ. He says those power sources are one and the same the word of the cross the way into the Christian life is the death burial and resurrection of Jesus the way up in the Christian life is the death burial and resurrection of Jesus we never grow past our need for Christ's cross we are to work not for our redemption, but from it. Having gained all of God's approval in Christ, having been loved with His own agape, which He has for Himself, His Son, and His Spirit, we are now recipients of this love in Christ and having been redeemed, we're not to look elsewhere for our sustenance, but looking unto Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and it's now set down at the right hand of the throne of God, we find power. The Word of the cross is power to those who are being saved. Luther said the reason we preach the Gospel every Sunday is because that's how dumb we are. We forget the Gospel every week. So Luther said famously, we must beat the Gospel into our heads continually because it is to those who find the Word of the cross to be God's power. It is they and they alone who are the being saved. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes again to this little church in Corinth. And he speaks of two categories of humanity. Now you tell me, we can divide humanity into all kinds of categories. But are the two most ultimate not what he's talking about in this verse? And then he underlines it again, not to a different group, but to the same church. For we... Are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The Word of Christ. Verses 19 to 29 take us into God's wisdom. His Word concerning Christ in verse 18, but His Wisdom in Christ in verses 19 through 29. There are two parts to this section. It's first God's wisdom, and then second, God's choice. Verses 19 to 25 tell us about God's wisdom. Look again at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Then verses 21 and following, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, And the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you see in verse 19, for it is written. This section deals with God's wisdom. The second subsection of this this portion deals with God's choice. But in God's wisdom, do you see that quotation in verse 19? It comes from Isaiah 29, verse 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever all set aside. So I just want you to see it. Paul's writing to a first century church. He's grabbing material from 700 years earlier. He's pulling it out of Isaiah 29. Dropping it into the church at Corinth. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. We simply must understand the context of Isaiah 29 to have an idea of what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 1. Now, I'd love to preach Isaiah 29, but I'm just going to summarize for you. Israel then was under under imminent threat from the new big kid on the block, Assyria. And Assyria had threatened to besiege Israel's key cities, Jerusalem in particular. To lay siege to a city means you just surround it And you wait them out to die. They get no water, they get no food, or they surrender. And Assyria, militarily speaking, had so far overmatched Israel that Israel had apparently no hope. King Hezekiah is on the throne in Israel and his advisors are sought out for counsel. And Hezekiah's advisors counsel him to ally with another power in order to try to defeat the Assyrians. Who did Hezekiah's counselors encourage him to ally Israel with? Egypt. Hezekiah's advisors counsel him to ally with Egypt to try to defeat the Assyrians, and he does it. But according to the way the world thinks, that certainly must have seemed wise. I can see their draft papers all over the command central headquarter boardroom table. Here's how we in Egypt, it must have seemed wise. But what you have to know about Isaiah 29 is that it's not the first chapter in the book. God had already told the people to trust Him for victory in this particular battle. So this verse in Isaiah 29 may not sound so familiar to you. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. But that's the context. But I would venture to guess that the verse right before it sounds familiar to almost everybody in the room. Isaiah 29, 13. This people. Honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Does that sound familiar? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now, do you see what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He's applying the passage from Isaiah to the situation in Corinth. The Corinthians, surprised rhetoric they loved logic if you could spread out the war plan on the boardroom table and it would make sense to them by your persuasive sweet speech they were ready to buy it you could say that the whole city worshiped well-spoken words and Paul is saying like Israel who allied themselves with Egypt to try to overthrow mighty Assyria when they were under the threat of siege, so also the church at Corinth is in danger. The danger of aligning yourselves with worldly wisdom that will set you in opposition not against Assyria, against the God of all power and against the cross of Jesus Christ. And the issue as the verse prior to Paul's quotation so obviously points out, which Jesus so repeatedly cites, is the heart. This people honors me with their lips. Can you hear all the famous and well-spoken preachers and orators in Corinth? They honor me with their lips, but it's a heart issue. God is chasing your heart. The issue is always the heart. And the very next thing God says in that Old Testament passage, not I'm going to refine, I'm going to sand off the rough edges, I'm going to chisel away a bit at the wisdom of the wise, I'm going to destroy it. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever, I'm going to set it aside. In short, to set yourself against God's wisdom equals death. This section of our passage goes on to describe God's wisdom. Namely, that God's wise design. Isn't this strange? God's wise design is that nobody can know Him through the world's forms of wisdom. This is why verses 19-29 to are about God's wisdom in Christ. Did you notice that verse 21 says, sense in the wisdom of God. God thinks it's a good idea. In the wisdom of God, okay, what would the all wise God do? The world through its wisdom can't know me. Do you see the connection? It doesn't matter how many times Israel allies with Egypt, and it doesn't matter how many times you and I try to smuggle things in to Christianity at the very center that are not Christ. To do so is to wage war against God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God purposed. God purposed. That nobody can know God through their own contrivances. In this section, Paul continues to borrow from Isaiah. Maybe your Bible sets it aside and helps you to see that it's an Old Testament citation. Maybe not, but I want to show you. You see these three rhetorical questions in verse 20? Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Verse 20, Where is the wise? That's a quote from Isaiah 19.12. Where is the scribe? That's a quote from Isaiah 33.18. He's clearly connecting the situation in Corinth to God's judgment against Israel. You're fighting God. You know what Isaiah ends with? With God saying, these people have set themselves against Israel me. And then Israel says, God has turned and become our enemy. And if you have your hope resting anywhere other than Christ for all your acceptance with God, then you're actually fighting against the biggest enemy in the universe. And you can't win that battle Where's the wise? Isaiah 19. Where's the debater? Isaiah 33. And then Paul adds his own because he's talking to the Corinthians. Where's the debater? That's not from Isaiah. That's from Paul. He thinks you're so impressed with all your law, your logic. It's getting you nowhere with God. Harkening back to Isaiah's prophecy. Questions 1 and 2. Adding his third question to the list. Number 3 were designed by Paul to get somewhere. He's not trying to destroy this church. He's trying to help them. And what he's doing in these three rhetorical questions is teeing up the last question, which is the end of verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? How did it work out for Israel in chapter 29 of Isaiah. Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul knows what every Christian knows. And what Paul knows and what every Christian knows, and we say it around here a lot and it can become white noise, but Paul knows that the Gospel has to tear you all the way down before it can begin to build you back up. If you're hoping in any of your so-called righteousness or wisdom, your intellect or whatever else it may be, for your salvation, because God is God, you must be condemned. So we say around here all the time, you can't fit through the narrow door of heaven into eternal life while you're holding all your good works. Look how smart I am, God. Look how good I did, God. And we wouldn't say it that way because that's not as sophisticated as we are in our sinfulness. So we say it like this, I prayed my prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. I did my part. That's the way we say it. You can't fit through the narrow gate of heaven holding all your good works. If you want to point to you as the ground reason for which God should accept you for all eternity, I have nothing but bad news for you. But even the truly regenerate, if they were to stand before God and be asked a question that He's not going to ask us, why should I let you into my heaven when I die? If that were to be asked, the truly regenerate would in that moment not point to themselves but to Him. And they would say, you shouldn't accept me. There is no reason that you should accept me. But on the basis of Christ and His righteousness and the promises that you have made to your people in the risen Redeemer, I am coming to you boldly in His name because you said all who come to Him you certainly will not cast out. Having leveled the playing field, and showing that the ground is perfectly level at the foot of the cross, Paul turns to the only source of everlasting help, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. So as we conclude this 1st subpoint beneath the main heading number two, which is about God's wisdom, I want you to look at verses 21 to 25, and then we'll look at the 2nd subpoint under this heading before we turn to number three. Before we move on from this subheading, God's wisdom, let your eyes fall again on verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, here it comes, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Well, now we're back to the same point Paul was making in verse 18, aren't we? The word of the cross of Jesus is power to those who are being saved. Verse 21. The message preached, save those who believe. Don't miss the contrast between uh, in verse 21 between the world and the good pleasure of God. The world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. Good pleasure of God save everybody who believes His message. I don't know if you have meditated... Much on that theme, the good pleasure of God. That's all over the Bible. One of the places is in Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks about God's good pleasure three times. Meaning it rouses the heart of God Almighty to delight, to do certain things. And one of the things in Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 1 and many other places is it pleases God. It is His good pleasure to save anybody who will believe His message. The Bible's question is not mainly when did you get saved? The Bible's question is mainly do you now believe? we can illustrate it with the common illustration I don't know the nanosecond that I fell in love with Tracy though I'm pretty sure it's the first time I saw her but I do know this I love her when did that begin I can't take you to the nanosecond but I can tell you that it's an ongoing reality when did you first believe you may not be able to take me to the nanosecond but the question is not that it's not then it's now Do you believe? Do you see it in verse 21? The message preached equals salvation. Is it past tense? Who once believed? It's those who believe. What's the great evidence that you've ever believed? That you believe. That right now, You are basing all of your hope for the fulfillment of every promise God has made to His people for time and eternity squarely on the solid foundation of Jesus. Because Paul knew that the church in Corinth was riddled with divisions, he goes for the jugular in verse 22. Ethnic distinctions. Feels like this was written this morning. Jews and Greeks... You do know, don't you, that Paul didn't plant two churches in Corinth. The Jewish church and the Gentile church. Now that sure would have been easy and very seeker sensitive. But he doesn't do it. All the people that Paul encountered received one and only one message. And if they didn't want it, it wasn't Paul they were rejecting. It was the God contained in the message that he delivered. And verse 23 says, we preach, Jews and Greeks, we preach Christ crucified. I'll say it again. If you don't want an ethnically diverse church that is unified in Jesus, then heaven would be a miserable place for you forever. The only way to be isolated from people who are unlike you is to forever spend eternity in the isolation of hell. So Paul sums up the matter beautifully in verse 24, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, he does it again, Christ, the power of God Christ the wisdom of God what he's saying is one Jesus died for all people the unified church depends on a unified Christ so he's back to the theme that was bothersome in the church at Corinth that they had so much disunity when all the while there's only one redeemer he alone is the power of God. He alone is the wisdom of God. And the only people in the world who know this Jesus know Him because as the verse says, and you may not like it, but if you don't like it, your argument not with Jordan. It's with Jesus. The only people who know this Jesus know Him because the verse says it. Black ink, white paper. They are called by God to Christ. Jesus explained this very same thing so many times. One place was John six forty four. No one, Jesus said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws them. And I will raise them up on the last day. So I want to say this positively to you. If you have any inkling of interest in giving your life to Jesus, it is not because you conjured that up by yourself it means that the God of heaven is reaching His mighty hand down through the universe into your little heart and He's pulling you to Christ. Who are you to be the epic fool to say to Him, no thank you? If you have any interest in Jesus, it's because God is at work in your heart. When Paul preached the Gospel of Christ to the Gentiles for the first time, first time he ever preached the Gospel to non-Jews, it was in Acts chapter 13. And a bunch of people got saved. And you know what Paul said? Acts 13.48. Not, have y'all heard how awesome I am at preaching to the Gentiles? Not what he said. Too bad y'all missed my crusade last night. Y'all could have got saved too. Not what he says. Acts 13.48. First time he ever preaches to the Gentiles. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It's only the effectual calling of God, Jeffrey Wilson writes. Only the effectual calling of God. Only the effectual calling of God, which accounts for the difference between these two groups. The fact that some Jews and some Greeks do believe, verse 21, the message of salvation is not explained by Paul in terms of their free will. He attributes their faith to nothing but the gracious initiative of God. Instead of starting to ask, well then how can I know if I'm called? How can I know if I'm elect? Just look at the rest of the verse. Christ, the power of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. What does that mean? It's in that order for a reason. It's not until you taste His saving power that you'll stand in awe of God's infinite wisdom that He can rescue a rebel like you. The called, the called are those to whom the risen Christ, notice there's not the word crucified in verse 24, it's everywhere else. Christ, not Christ crucified, Christ is the power of God. We're talking about the risen Jesus in verse 24. He is God's saving power. Salvation is not something God gives you. Salvation is someone God gives you. Those who are being saved, verse 18, who are believing, verse 21, who are the called, verse 24, are distinguished by this reality. Christ Jesus is to them the most cataclysmic expression of the omnipotence of God. You can't get run over by that freight train and not be different. All who belong to Jesus understand His answer to the apostles. These are His best friends who were walking with Him one day on a dusty pathway and they heard some teaching from Jesus that they didn't like very much and they started asking Him some questions. And the first question they asked Him, who then can be saved? Because they thought they checkmated Jesus. You can't say stuff like that and anybody be saved. So they think they put Jesus in checkmate to say, well, if that's true, who can be saved? Interpretation, that can't be true, because if it is, nobody can be saved. Who then can be saved? You know Jesus' response. With men, it is impossible but not with God for all things are possible with God could we please start a campaign to stop praying that verse over a bunch of nonsense that's temporary all things are possible with God that doesn't apply to a new car that doesn't apply to a bigger house that doesn't apply to an easier life or no pain that applies to salvation with men it is impossible it meaning saving souls It is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now put that in context. All things are possible with God. Even the rescue of your rebellious soul. God can even do that. He must be some kind of wonderful to be able to save somebody as wretched as you. The risen Jesus is that powerful. He can save even me. He's the power of God, but He's also the wisdom of God. There's never been a greater display of wisdom, nor could there be. You see, this same Jesus who was suspended on a tree outside of Calvary, uh, outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Calvary, that same Jesus created the seed that became the tree that dropped the fruit, that became the tree that dropped the the fruit that became the tree that dropped the fruit that became the tree on which he hung. That same Jesus made all the creatures in the deep blue sea. He flung the endless galaxies into space. He's the one that filled the air beneath our ozone with birds and the gardens by which we walk with flowers. And in all of the great displays of His unlimited wisdom, none of them standing alone, and not all of them cumulatively combined on one side of the scale would compare to the weight of the display of God's infinite wisdom in the cross. This is the crowning jewel of the genius of God. That God could remain God and befriend somebody as depraved as me is a testament owing entirely to his incalculable, unsearchable, inscrutable wisdom. How can he do it? How does he remain God and become my friend? How does it not diminish his deity or tarnish his glory? How does it not compromise his character for him to welcome me into his presence? How can he declare me righteous in his sight and not simultaneously sweep all my crimes underneath an invisible rug? How can he do it? Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable is his wisdom How unfathomable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to God that God should pay that man back again for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him belong the glory forever. How does he make you righteous? Here's wisdom. Jesus. Christ is not part of the wisdom of God. He is, according to Colossians chapter 2, the storehouse of all the wisdom of God. And to declare you righteous in God's sight took some kind of wisdom. And it took wisdom himself being lacerated so that his blood could flow and be sprinkled on the mercy seat of heaven so that God's justice could be upheld and your soul saved. And all creation brought back into its proper order one day. When the creatures of God dancing under the light of the gospel will enjoy the glory of God for endless eternities in a daytime that will never turn to night with no sleep, no hunger, no pain. All of this, all of this, all of this is owing to a cross on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem where the Son of God hung for your redemption. Now that's wisdom. And if you want to count it foolishness, I can talk here all day until I'm blue in the face, but I can't persuade you. What you need is a miracle. When are you going to get desperate? When are you going to get on your face? I'm talking about put your nose down into a dusty rug. I'm talking about get prostrate in front of the God of the universe and tell Him that all the breath He's put in your lungs for all the days you've been alive, you've used it, you have used it in order to defy Him in order to deny Him, in order to try to deify yourself. When are you going to get desperate? When are you going to throw yourself prostrate in front of the God of the universe who loved you so much that He put Christ forward as the propitiation for your sins and say, thank you God. What a wise plan. What a wise God. I give you glory for the only Redeemer and I thrust myself into His almighty arms. If you'll do that, Verse 26-29 to tells you it's because God chose you. Part of God's wisdom is His choice. This is the second part under the second section. There's an inspired accent mark that lands on God's prerogative, on His choice. Look at verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren. Look at verse 27, God has chosen. Skim to the middle of the verse. God has chosen. Look at verse 28. God has chosen. In this portion of this chapter, Paul's drawing attention to the utter ordinariness of the Corinthian Christians. There were some among them of nobility. Crispus was the leader of the synagogue. Gaius was apparently a man of some great material means. But there were, quote, not many such people among the redeemed in Corinth. Selina Hastings was the Countess of Huntingdon, born in 1707. And Hastings, our sister in Christ, said, blessed be God. It does not say any mighty, any noble, but it says many mighty, many noble. She said, I was saved by the letter M. I owe my salvation to the letter M, Hastings writes. It, if it had been not any noble, where would the countess have been? God does save from all sectors of society. But if you just look at His work over the course of redemptive history, you'll see. Now brace yourself for this. It's a bunch of nobodies like us. There's not an impressive person in this room. And God orders it that way. You may be thinking, God can't possibly want me. Because it seems that nobody in the whole world would want a person like me. Well, oh dear friend, you're in a wonderfully poised position. You are precisely the type of person that God loves to save. And I would say with Samuel Rutherford, why would you have two hells? Why would you have one here and one hereafter when you can have, yes, certain difficulty here and ignominy, scorn, shame, but hereafter, everlasting bliss. Charles Hodge says they must learn that the things which elevate man in the world, knowledge, influence, rank, are not the things which lead to God and His salvation. And three times he says in this little passage concerning His great wisdom to redeem sinners in Christ, God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen Finally, the text would say, not only His Word concerning Christ and His wisdom in Christ, but His work through Christ. Verse 30 and 31, but by His doing, that is God the Father, by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You can see that the passage is bracketed by it is written. Verse 18, verse 31. Well, if I've ever been tempted by two verses to preach for two days nonstop, these are those two verses. Pop quiz. How did those of you in this room, and I presume that it's the vast majority, How did those of you who are saved gain the status of being in Christ? The verse is not unclear. But by His doing are ye in Christ Jesus. God did it. God did it. God did it. The phrase naturally flows from verse 29, which says, after saying three times God has chosen you, that He's done so, quote, so that no man may boast before God. And this will again be Paul's application in verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What Paul's saying is that God saves all by Himself and all for Himself. And the only contribution you ever make to your salvation, let's be clear, you do contribute to your salvation. But the only contribution you ever make toward your salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. You will, If you will not humble yourself under the mighty hand of God to the point of abhorring your so-called righteousness, you'll never be saved. Because those who are in Christ are there by God's doing and by God's doing, verse 30 says, Christ became to us wisdom from God. Now I agree with Richard Owen Roberts and Tom Schreiner and a host of other commentators who agree that this sequence of four words, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, the latter three are unpacking the first. So the verse would be translated literally like this, Christ is made to us, wisdom from God, that is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. What does it mean in verse 24 that Christ is the wisdom of God? Or in verse 30, that God has made him unto us wisdom? Well, Paul's answer is this is what that means righteousness, sanctification, redemption, one at a time. This word righteousness, you've got to buckle your big theology belt for just a minute, and I promise you we're coming close to a landing. No turbulence. God has made him unto us wisdom that is righteousness this speaks of the doctrine of justification that we are counted righteous in God's sight through faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection on that basis those who believe in Jesus that he is the only adequate Redeemer and repent from their sins and trust him for forgiveness and full and free salvation those people are according to this verse counted righteous that is god's wisdom jonathan edwards put it this way christ is not only our justification but he is the ever abiding cause of our remaining justified that is jesus is our righteousness do you know you're never going to get over your need for jesus even in heaven when you have no sin nature he is your justification God's wisdom that makes angels stupefied in heaven is seen in this. God declares righteous all those sinners who hide in Jesus from the wrath to come. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 is about, that we are made the righteousness of God in Him. That's what Philippians 3 is about. I want a righteousness that does not come from the law, but the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's righteousness. That's God's wisdom. Also in God's wisdom, Christ is made unto us, wisdom from God, not only righteousness, but sanctification. This word is not referring to the process of becoming like Christ. Sanctification usually means that. That's not what this means. Rather, this is talking about our status before Him. Whereas justification is the legal term that we are right in His sight, this word sanctification could be translated holiness talks about not being close to God but clean before him the word sanctification refers to being clean in God's sight like the cleansing we looked at last Sunday evening in Leviticus 11 through 15 in our discipleship group here this word refers to a ceremonial cleansing that people must have in order to be acceptable in God's sight Christ as God's wisdom is our sanctification by virtue of the privileges and the joys that Jesus gives us. Those who are in Christ because God is wise are made acceptable in His sight, clean before Him forever meaning you can enter as the Old Testament priest was wont to do once a year. You can enter God's tabernacle at any time. In fact, you are never to leave. You can live your life in the Holy of Holies without fear of retribution because Jesus brings you near to God. In God's wisdom, you're declared righteous. In God's wisdom, you are also sanctified. You get to come into the Holy of Holies. You get to live your life before the face of God and enjoy Him forever. And then finally, it's redemption. This is God's wisdom. It refers to the price paid by Christ for, for our ever access to the Father. This is a word that means you were bought by Jesus. Paul speaks of this later in 1 Corinthians 6 says you were bought with a price It carries the idea of being atoned for, which is what we're actually going to look at this evening in our discipleship group here in Leviticus 16. Paul is emphasizing here that Christ, Christ is the price of our redemption. So now let me say verse 30 with all that in the background. By God's doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. You want to know what that means? You're righteous in God's sight. You're sanctified in front of Him. You're bought forever, and he'll never have buyer's remorse. He wants you. He's going to keep you. He'll never let you go. So, what's the application? It's verse 31. He who boasts is to boast only in the Lord. We take no credit for our salvation because we didn't call ourselves, we didn't die for ourselves. If we had done either or both of those, it would have done us no good. We boast in the Lord. He gets all the glory. Has this Gospel penny dropped for you? It's a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 9. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. Let not the strong man boast of his strength. But let him who boasts, boast in the Lord that he understands and knows God, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things God takes great delight. That's where that quotation comes from. Has that gospel penny dropped for you? I have a Lord's Day afternoon meditation assignment for you. You get homework today. It's happened to me so many times, but I can remember like it was yesterday, the first time. It felt like a second conversion. I was already in Christ, I had already been walking with Jesus for a few years, it was a godly man who had discipled me week after week after week, right through books of the Bible and so many passages and themes of Scripture, I had seen so much of the love of God and the Gospel of Christ and the glory of God in the face of Christ, I was becoming more and more hungry for the truth of God's Word and trying to steep myself in His Word, I was having daily quiet times and memorizing passages of Scripture, but I can remember like it was yesterday. And it did feel like a second conversion. When I was sitting in an empty apartment, no furniture, the only one in the room, the only one in the, in the space, and Clyde, the fellow who had discipled me, had just left. We had sat there for a couple of hours looking at God's Word together, and our whole conversation was predicated on the question that I asked him at the very beginning. Whose initiative is it? It's the question I ask Claude. Did God look down the corridor of time and foreknow that I would choose Him and mark me as the elect and then back up as it were and let time run its course and those are the ones He predestined? And if that's true, Did I choose Him or did He choose me? Because every time I'm reading Scripture, I keep running into this phrase. And it seems like the initiative is always God. Two hours. Clyde took me to passage after passage and didn't say one of his own words. He just said, read this. We flip to another one, he'd say, Read that. We flip to another one, he'd say, Read that. When we get to passages like Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. May it never be that I would boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. And in that two-hour process, and after Clyde left, and those many hours that I sat there in stunned silence, in praise to God and humility before Him, and it's happened a hundred dozen times since then. I keep running into verses like Romans chapter 3, where then is boasting? It is is excluded. In Romans 15, therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting. What? In things pertaining to God. Verse 31 is the only right response. Divided church at Corinth. How did you get here? Why are you counted among the redeemed? Why not your next door neighbor? Why not somebody else in your family? Why not somebody else in another corner of the world? How did you come into this family? It's God and only God. Therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want to know what will kill all the factions and divisions in the church at Corinth? Jesus. We're about to stand and sing a few little lines. Or better yet. They'll sing a few little lines as we respond to this sermon at the Lord's Supper or remaining in our seat in prayerful meditation over these things. But the few little lines they're going to sing, you've heard them so many times that you're almost not going to be able to hear them. So I'm going to tell you what they are. They'll sing some first and these will close it. You ready for this? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. Let's pray together. Father, our response here in prayer at the Lord's table and remaining for some of us in our seats in prayerful contemplation, our prayer is one and the same. Give us Jesus. And deeper than that, give us to Jesus trophies of His grace, monuments of His love, Ridiculous displays of His saving power. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. How could we not boast in You? Look how great You are. Look at what a God You are. Look at what a Savior Jesus is. Look at what a friend, indweller, comforter, helper, paraclete, the Holy Spirit is. Look at, a, look at the family that you have brought us into. You and your triune fellowship and your people, redeemed by the same blood from the same cross from the same Redeemer for all eternity. Oh, we're here to boast in you. We're not going to let the rocks cry out. We're boasting in you, God. You are great. You are glorious. You are mighty to save. And we're happy, equal parts glad and dumbfounded that we would be counted among the number of the redeemed. Oh God, to You alone be all the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. You're invited to respond. For those that come to the supper, we're going to ask that one of our members offer a prayer of thanks for the Gospel in each circle. You come as they sing or you remain seated in prayerful meditation. Then Pastor Nathan will come and close our service in just a few moments.